This episode of Outlines contains graphic descriptions of a crime which some listeners may find distressing. So as always, discretion is advised. On March the 6th, 1901, a prisoner was transported between Newgate and Mousehold Heath, the site where, atop a small hill, Norwich Prison stood and still does stand. Here, the man, prisoner number 1622, who had been condemned to hang, would wait out the last few weeks of his life, having spent the previous few months a permanent fixture on the front pages of the newspapers. He was so much a celebrity prisoner that by the time the Easter of that year came around, his likeness would be on display at Madame Tussauds in their Chamber of Horrors exhibition. He was hanged a few weeks before the exhibition opened, and again, the days leading up to his death were reported in detail. The morning of the execution was a Thursday, the 21st of March, 1901. It was bright but cold that day, as spectators and policemen alike crossed the heath and headed down the private road towards the prison gates, where a small, bare pole was erected. The wind was high, and the sound of the tolling church bell did not carry to the onlookers. But a little after nine that morning, the black flag was flown, indicating that inside the prison walls, the murderer Herbert John Bennett was dead. Later, witnesses to the hanging would say that he looked deadly pale and close to fainting as he took the 25-yard walk from his cell to the scaffold, and that he had had to be supported by wardens on either side as he approached the six-foot, nine-inch drop. He died almost instantly with the dislocation of his vertebrae, and after the inquest reached completion, the 21-year-old was buried in a grave at the southwest corner of the prison, in a plot next to a man named Watt, who had also been hanged for the murder of his wife. The trial of Herbert Bennett, dubbed variously as the Yarmouth Beach Murder, the South Beach Murder, and the Yarmouth Bootlace Killings, among other things, has been described as being one of the most celebrated murder cases of that year, and the newspapers played an instrumental part in creating the sensation that it became, and, also, in Herbert's conviction, as they pursued new, more damning information and doggedly reported on his deceits and secrets. I came across Herbert a few years ago now, when researching my episode on the 1912 case of Dora Gray in Great Yarmouth, an unsolved case with a few, perhaps, tenuous similarities to the first bootlace murder. At the time of Dora's death, the papers led with stories questioning the validity of Herbert's conviction and recording the words of his lawyer, the well-respected Sir Edward Marshall Hall, who wrote to a friend after the trial that... The best thing for society is that a born criminal like Bennett should be hanged, and I should not be surprised if it were proved against him that he had committed six murders hitherto undiscovered. But he never murdered his wife on Yarmouth Beach on September 22nd, 1900, unless I am sadly deceived. This was just one of a number of letters written by Marshall Hall following the guilty verdict, and these have since helped bolster the argument for Herbert's innocence. 
chapters of books and a whole rather sensationalist book from the 1920s have been written in the years since the murder occurred. And even an episode of the TV series Murder, Mystery and My Family was dedicated to Herbert's case. Despite all of this, nothing has come to light to offer proof that a miscarriage of justice occurred, except that there were similarities in what happened to Dora Gray, and there's always been a niggling doubt as to whether the main and most damning piece of physical evidence was even what it appeared to be. Was Herbert Bennett guilty of murder, or was he convicted by the journalists who sentenced him to death even before his trial made it to the Old Bailey? I'm Jess Carter, and this is a Patreon-exclusive episode of The Outlines podcast. began on Great Yarmouth's South Beach in Norfolk at just past six in the morning on Sunday, September the 23rd, 1900. A 14-year-old boy called John Norton, an employee of Hewitt's Bathing Huts, was on his way across the beach when he spied a woman lying in the quiet area of the dunes. Assuming her to be asleep, he went on, but told Mr Grief, the keeper of the huts, that he'd seen her resting, and Mr Grief told him to go back and wake her. She was laying almost directly in the track which led to the bathing chalets, and as he got closer, he realised that what had seemed like sleep was actually something much worse. The woman lay flat on her back in the sand, with her hands relaxed by her side, though her legs were askew and there were footprints surrounding her, and around her neck, directly below her chin, a tightly knotted mohair bootlace could be seen. Five yards away, the ground bore signs that a struggle had taken place. She was around five foot two inches tall, with golden blonde hair, which, on inspection, turned out to be dyed and was nicely dressed in a grey embroidered garment with a broad, white braided scroll design down the side. Her only jewellery was her rings. She wore four of them, split equally between her middle fingers. One was a gold keeper ring, and three were dress rings set with fancy stones. Beside her lay a white straw sailor hat with a black band, which had an attached black veil which was spotted white and appeared new. The boy rushed to summon the police, and by half six that morning, Constable Manship had arrived at the scene. He later told the inquest that it did not occur to him to wait until the Chief Constable arrived before moving the body, and so he discovered that beneath her lay a white handkerchief, and in her pocket were a pair of four-button kid gloves, neatly folded. Further away in the sand, a case which would have contained expensive glasses, were found. Constable Manship made a preliminary examination of her body 
and then sent John Norton to fetch William Weed of Ordnance Road to bring a horse and cart in order to transport the body to the mortuary. As the arrangements were put in place, and as was common at the time, no efforts were made to ensure that the spot where the woman lay remained guarded. Once in the mortuary, the woman's body was examined by a police surgeon named Dr Lettuce. The newspapers described the woman in lurid detail, saying, The deceased, as she lay on the slate slab in the death chamber on the North Quay, presented a sad spectacle. The lace tied tightly around her throat seemed to be quite new, with one tag missing. It had bitten deeply into her flesh, leaving a tinged band of red discoloration. The opened mouth and staring eyes mutely evidenced the sudden and violent end that overtook her. Her face, framed with light, crisp, curly hair, is scratched over, leaving ugly little freshly made red wounds that may testify an attempt at resistance on her part. Dr Lettuce later gave a more formal, but equally as harrowing, summary of his examination saying that the lace around her throat, which was tied in a reef knot with a granny knot on top, was drawn so tightly that he had to take great care so as not to break her skin. It was established that the way the lace depressed her chin would have prevented her from crying out. There were bloodstains on her underwear and scratches on the side of her face near her eyes, on her nose and on both sides of her clenched jaw. The tip of her tongue was covered in sand, and the left side of her thyroid cartilage appeared to have been nipped. On the inside of her mouth there was a bruise caused by her lip having been thrust against her teeth. Her hands, when examined under a magnifying glass, showed no traces of her having scratched anyone, although Dr Lettuce supposed that the movements of her hands in the sand as she was being killed would have removed any traces of skin from underneath her nails. Her body bore signs of bruising, which Dr Charles O'Farrell, who assisted the post-mortem, stated, seemed likely to have been caused by something hard, perhaps a stick or the end of an umbrella. An examination of her organs revealed that, while healthy, they bore signs of asphyxia, and it was concluded that death would probably have occurred about two minutes after the lace had been tied, and that she had probably been dead for seven to eight hours, meaning that her time of death was roughly 11pm the previous evening. It's since been said that to pinpoint the window of her death to such a small time frame would have been nigh on impossible. But officially, it is recorded that she died late on the evening of September the 22nd, while all of this was very quickly established after the discovery of her body, definitively identifying her proved to be more challenging, though it didn't initially appear that way. As the woman lay dead in the mortuary, a shoemaker named John Rudrum of 104 Custom House Rose in Yarmouth, whose wife Eliza and daughter Alice ran a boarding house from their home, was growing concerned for the welfare of their lodger, Mrs Hood, who had gone out the previous evening and was yet to return. It didn't take long for Mr Rudrum to discover that his lodger was the same woman who had been murdered the previous evening, and for the police to descend on Custom House Rose and Mrs Hood's quarters, 
where they eagerly began to search for clues. Initially, police established that Mrs Hood had a two-year-old daughter who she called Rose and that the two of them had arrived in Yarmouth on the London train on Saturday, September the 15th, a week prior to her death. They alighted at around quarter to nine and initially gave no name, though she later told Eliza Rudrum that she was 27, that her husband of five years had died shortly before the birth of their daughter. She claimed that her brother-in-law was in love with her and that she had a house in Yorkshire which was being looked after by a neighbour in her absence. Mrs Hood didn't know how long she would be staying in Yarmouth, but said that she had a great deal of money on arrival, though the length of her stay would be dependent on what she received from an unnamed cousin. The night of her arrival, she went out almost immediately, and the Rudrums remembered that she was accompanied by a man in the street, and that she came in very late, and very worse for wear, telling Mrs Rudrum that she had met her brother-in-law and that he had missed his train. Eliza Rudrum told police that usually Mrs Hood returned home before nine if she were out in the evening, and that over the week she stayed at the boarding house the family saw her every day, and remembered her well-dressed and wearing a number of items of jewellery, including a watch and a chain, as well as the rings she was wearing at the time of her death. As police inspected her room, they came across a cheaply framed photograph on the mantelpiece. The photo, which was reportedly shot by pop-up photographer James Coiners on Thursday, September the 20th, shows Mrs Hood and her child on the beach. She is wearing a blouse, skirt and satchel, and around her neck is a long chain necklace. This photograph would later serve as pivotal evidence when the case against Herbert Bennett came to trial. The Rudrums remembered that during the week Mrs Hood stayed with them, she was anxiously awaiting the delivery of a letter, which finally arrived on the Friday in a grey-blue envelope addressed to Mrs Hood and postmarked Woolwich. That evening, the Rudrum's daughter Alice saw Mrs Hood standing at the edge of row 104, next to the quay. She didn't see anyone else with her, but heard a man's voice which said, You understand, don't you? I'm placed in an awkward position just now. She claimed that she then heard the sound of the man and Mrs Hood kissing before she returned to the house. Mrs Hood and Alice were meant to be going to the aquarium that night, but she told her the following day that it was as a consequence of the letter coming that she was unable to do so. On the day of her murder, Mrs Hood left the boarding house at around seven in the evening after having put her daughter to bed. She was dressed in the clothes she, was, she would later be found in and reportedly had an appointment to meet someone under the town hall clock. This was confirmed by Alice Rudrum, who spoke to her at around 9pm that night outside the town hall. About an hour later, she was allegedly seen in the South Quay distillery with a man. He had a heavy moustache which he twirled often and was wearing a suit, a trilby hat, but no necktie. The man drank a Johnny Walker and she had either gin or whiskey, depending on which report you read. There were only a few punters in the pub that night and the witness, William Borking, the pub manager, was sure that the woman was Mrs Hood. 
A little time later, a man named Alfred Mason sat on the beach with a companion, Blanche Smith. From their vantage point in a hollow on the dunes, they saw a man and a woman coming up the beach and heard distant talking. The couple sat down, about 30 yards away on the slope of the dunes, and shortly afterwards they heard a cry of mercy, mercy. After that came only some moaning sounds, and around 10 minutes later, Alfred and Blanche moved away from their spot. Alfred would later say that they did not think a woman was being murdered, although he was quite sure that the man and the woman were in the spot where Mrs Hood's body would later be found. With their search of the boarding house completed and statements taken, the police set to work finding out more information about the mysterious Mrs Hood and her even more mysterious male companion. It soon became apparent, though, that this was going to be a difficult job when, through a little digging, it transpired that none of her background story even her name, was accurate. They couldn't establish the validity of any of the information she'd given to the Rudrums, and so they were back to square one, with only a couple of clues. A laundry mark, number 599, which was discovered on the clothes she was wearing when she died, and the letter she'd received on the Friday, postmarked Woolwich. The murder was big news in the local papers, and while police's inquiries moved into their second week, with very few results, arrangements were made to quickly and quietly bury the body. On September the 28th, 1900, the body of the woman known as Mrs Hood was taken from the mortuary via the Fourth Quay and Fuller's Hill to the parish church. The redwood coffin bore no name, and the woman was registered as the Unknown, with Hood in parenthesis. There to witness the burial were Mrs Rudrum, her daughter Alice and Mrs Hood's child Rose, who was staying with the Rudrums until her family could be found. Already the murder had become a sensation in the local newspapers, and unfortunately for police, residents of Yarmouth were quick to guess the nature of the funeral and by the time the ambulance reached the church, almost 200 people had reportedly assembled nearby, warranting the need for Detective Inspector Lingwood and Inspector Harrison to linger on guard in case crowd control was called for. As the weeks went by and the woman remained unidentified, efforts were made to trace the origin of her dress with the white braid, though it was forwarded to a series of London dressmakers with no success. Descriptions of Mrs Hood were also circulated up and down the country, and police reportedly received a large number of letters from husbands who had lost their wives and mothers who had lost their daughters. The men and women would visit Scotland Yard to view the photo taken on Yarmouth Beach, but none of them recognised the woman or child. Eventually, the decision was made to circulate the photograph in the evening papers, in the hopes that someone would recognise her that way. It was this move, coupled with their ongoing investigations into the laundry mark, which eventually led them to a house in Bexley Heath, London, a number one Glencoe Villas. 
despite the fact that when they carried out the room search at Custom House Rose, they could see no sign of Mrs Hood's purse or the satchel she carried in the beach photograph. A key had been found amongst her possessions, and when the Rudrums turned the room over themselves, they found that an item of the woman's clothing bore the name Bennett, albeit with one T instead of two. With the name Bennett in mind and the key in hand, police visited Glencoe Villas where they discovered that it was a fit for the lock. On entering the dwelling, they could see that it was unoccupied. The blinds were drawn, furniture packed, and to confirm that the woman had been in the flat, there was laundry present, all of which bore the mark 599. With this discovery, police intensified their investigations in the Bexley Heath and nearby Woolwich areas, and it was discovered that the woman and her child had indeed lived at Glencoe Villas, although reports as to whether or not there was a man with her vary dramatically. Their neighbour Lillian remembered their arrival and that they had left the property on September 15th, taking the key with them. They left a dog behind in the garden, who Lillian had been feeding ever since. It was then that police discovered that Mrs Hood had been residing there under the name Bennett. She was by all accounts a quiet woman, who had few visitors, although she did on one occasion go shopping with Lillian. As the investigation at Glencoe Villas intensified, and with the beach photograph now in circulation, it was only a matter of time before police came across the name Herbert John Bennett. I found it difficult to establish exactly how his name first came up. While he had been seen with Mrs Hood at Glencoe Villas, he did not appear to have lived there or to have disclosed his identity. Some reports claim that a piano delivered to the house in his name was responsible for his arrest. Others, that it was because of a man named Detective Bartle, a resident of Bexley Heath. The story claimed that Herbert Bennett was going by the name Private Detective Bartlett, and because of the similarity in name, the first Detective Bartle kept watch on Bartlett, even after he left Bexley Heath to move to Woolwich, at an address which is reported to have been next door to one Detective Sergeant, and directly opposite Woolwich Police Station. This could well be a flight of fancy on the part of the journalists, who appear to have been engaged in competition to see which of them could uncover the biggest scoop on a story which by now had become a nationwide sensation. Regardless of how he was first identified, on Tuesday the 6th of November 1900, Herbert was accosted as he walked home from his work at the Woolwich Arsenal and taken to the police station where he was questioned about the murder of Mrs Hood, who, by that point, had been identified as having lived in London under the name Mary Jane Bennett. Two days later, Bennett, who admitted to having been married to Mary but maintained he knew nothing of her death, was transported to Yarmouth to be charged with murder. It is reported that just two hours after he left Woolwich, Mary's father, William Clark, a butcher, called at Woolwich Police Station following reports of Herbert Bennett's arrest in the paper. When it had occurred to him on seeing a sketch of Herbert for the first time, that perhaps the woman murdered in Yarmouth was his daughter. 
he produced a photograph of Mary, and on learning for sure that the woman was indeed his daughter, he broke down in a fit of uncontrollable grief. Yes, he confirmed. She was indeed Mary Jane Bennett. She and Herbert had married in 1897, and together they had one daughter, a little girl of just under two years old, who was not called Rose, but Ruby. With these facts confirmed, police were finally able to build up a proper picture of the life of Mary Bennett and the many deceits and lies that she and her husband had propagated throughout their short marriage. And this is where I'm going to leave today's episode. I'm sorry for the cliffhanger, but there's just too much to fit into today, and I can't even begin to tell you how much research time a case like this takes. It's really a quite consuming process. Part two will be out next month, so I hope you enjoy this one and look forward to that. The new series should be ready to go within a month or so, though I'm yet to get the funds and time to head to Berkshire, so it all hinges on that. I hope you all have a great month. Thanks for sticking with me, and hopefully it's worth the wait.